Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're talking about exercise nutrition with Kyle Levers, PhD, an assistant professor in the Department of Exercise and Nutrition Sciences in the GW Milken Institute School of Public Health. Dr. Levers also serves as the director of the Metabolism and Exercise Testing Research Services and Academic Laboratories. The lab was set up to further expand public health-related research in the D.C. metro region by providing a readily accessible and professional space for principal investigators, or PIs, to engage in rigorous and reliable data collection across the physical activity, exercise physiology, nutrition, and human performance disciplines. Dr. Levers has a background in athletic performance development at the Division I collegiate level and in the private sector. He has co-authored several articles published on the impact nutrition and supplementation have on exercise performance and body composition. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Kyle. Uh, thank you both for having me. I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk to both of you today. Uh, we are very excited to have you and to hear more about the lab. Um, but first, we want to, I think, back up a little bit and talk about uh, the difference between exercise and physical therapy or occupational therapy or even you know, a referral to a chiropractor. And how do we know when someone is ready for exercise instead of those other types of treatments? I think it all comes back to health. And I think that's ultimately something that everyone that you just mentioned, including different types of medical professionals as well, is, is something that we have a hard time sorting out. There are so many metrics that we can use to determine whether somebody's healthy or not, and therefore able to start exercise. And I think the thing that has clouded our judgment just a bit more is the whole notion of social media existing as a prescriptive measure, right? And so not only do people decide to take on exercise themselves, but they don't understand necessarily the qualifications necessary to perform certain types of exercise, which ultimately lands them back into the circle or the referral for treatment for the professionals that you just uh, mentioned. But how do we What's a clear indicator whether somebody is ready or not, in my mind, it's do they have a healthy lifestyle to start out with? Are they properly prepared from a movement standpoint? Can they properly accomplish some of these things without significant limitation? And so we have, and we'll go into this a little bit more a bit later, but we have very simplistic metrics and screens that we can use to determine movement quality, movement capability, and also general health. And these are things that that most folks can do. A good example would be, is somebody getting adequate sleep, right? That would be a, a very easy metric to determine, hey, if I'm not getting adequate sleep, why am I going to pile on mm-hmm. additional stress, to the system that's not prepared necessarily, and that could that could be due to psychological stress, job-related, life-related stress. It could be also due to some physical nature of their job, etc. You know, didn't recover properly, so therefore they're not ready to take on some sort of high-level exercise regimen. 
I love that so much. And I think that is definitely something the average person doesn't think about because uh, many people actually get up earlier to work out, right? Like they will sacrifice their sleep to work out, not realizing the potential for um, not only not performing at their best, but perhaps actually causing harm to themselves. That's correct. And it's in sort of a negative spiral, if you will. And so I know for myself that certainly I was in that mode, um, always <laughs> always facilitating a lack of sleep just to get, I need to work out, I need to work out, I need to make sure that I get that in and not realizing necessarily how important sleep was or is um, to my overall well-being and quality of, of my, my overall performance every day. And so, you know, I think that's one thing that just an example of ways people can sort of quantify and make that distinction. I think the other way is, again, like I said, understanding whether they can move well and do they move often and that's something that's discussed with a lot of leaders in the field of of human performance but ultimately that's the dividing line in my mind is whether you're going to go see a pt ot uh, chiropractor etc is if you're not understanding how your general human system is supposed to function and you don't know that this pain this movement is not normal, mm-hmm. right? How are you going to know whether you should be going to see folks that that's their profession to identify and help um, sort of triage that that component and help you fix that, right? So I think we need to, we need to inform the public of things that are normal and, and not normal in terms of their everyday movement quantity and quality and if they're not able to do that, that's when you should start seeking out medical-based professionals, physical therapists, OTs, DCs, whatever, um, to make sure that you can get to a point where you can perform activities of daily living is, is well and often. I think that's the first uh, – that would, that would be my qualifying divi- dividing point is, again, the health parameters follow very closely by your movement and activity level every day. I, I love that as well. Uh, one of the statements that I, I say quite often is motion is lotion. And I think that sometimes <laughs> uh, we use exercise in place of movement, right? We get up in the morning to go for a run so we can sit all day and everything will be quote unquote okay. But I think you're making a really good point that those activities of daily movement and of daily living and that movement and keeping things going are really important. And we can't just replace that with exercise. That's correct. Yeah. We can't do our 30 minute espresso, espresso, um, you know, fitness class and think everything for the next 23 and a half hours is okay. <laughs> it's just, it's just not how, it's not how humans are built. Uh, we're not built to do that. We need to have constant movement. And I think also looking at, the difference between movement, physical activity, and ultimately exercise, right? And that's an incremental and very much a pyramid-type scenario where you're looking at the bare-bones basic things that you need to do is increase movement opportunities, followed then by something that's a little bit more purposeful, which is physical activity. And then if you are thinking even a greater level than that, which is, you know, planned long-term outcomes, things of that nature as being exercise and or training. 
bottom line, people, is step away from your laptops, your computers, whatever <laughs> else. Get up and move around. Right. About every, what, 25 to maybe 30 minutes? You know, I think it really depends on what your job tasks are, right? Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's not necessarily move. It, it is moving around, but it's also changing position. Yes. Right. So yeah. if I have my laptop and, and that would be nice to have a laptop over a desktop because I can take my laptop places, even mm-hmm. if it's in my house, I can take it, I can go and stand at the kitchen counter for a little bit. Okay. Then mm-hmm. I'm going to move it over here. I'm going to sit down for a while and do some work. Um, I think that's one aspect, but you're also right. Get away from the laptop. And it's not because necessarily you're not moving. It's also because your visual field is directly in front of you. And if you think about your eye musculature, your vision, if you're in this narrow focus straight ahead at a bright screen for eight, 10 hours a day, your eye musculature doesn't have the opportunity to refocus and, and examine things in your external environment at a distance. This is another example. So I, thank I, you for bringing that important. up. We often forget about that. Right. The eyes have muscles and and we need to use those as well. So Kyle, your background is in athletic performance development. How does that translate to the general population? I think it translates greatly and, and for all the reasons we just talked about, right? And I think my background in athletic performance has allowed me to realize, you know, that there is this massive application to the general population. And in fact, it actually starts there. And also looking at the fact that the one thing we're lacking in athletic performance development is exactly what we were just talking about is a lack of focus on health first, then layering performance on top of that. Again, going back to the sleep example, Mm -hmm. right? If you take an athlete, a student athlete, for example, and they're getting four hours of sleep a night, but oh, by the way, we got to get up for the 6 a.m. training session. It's the same concept, right? How you didn't possibly have adequate recovery in that four hours of sleep. And perhaps you were looking at your screen all the way up until bed, (laughs) right? How is that going to translate well to you performing the next day in that training session at 6 a.m. at the highest level? It's not. So I think that translates very well to the general population because we're looking at the same things. Our, Our metrics for health are the same. And what we do know is that actually athletes tend to be in some ways very unhealthy as well because of the things that they tend to take on and they overload the system without the adequate recovery. So I I think those parallels are even greater than you might think, despite the fact that there's a large discrepancy um, typically between the average American or the average population and the athletic population, we have this notion that, oh, you're an athlete, you must be healthy. Mm, Not necessarily all the time. So I I think we do have to pay attention to health, markers of health, and ensuring that happens first before we do anything else. doesn't matter if you're a desk jockey or or, a collegiate athlete or a professional athlete. All the things need to be taken care of, in my mind, in a similar fashion. 
That's that's very on point. Um, actually, having a similar conversation with some of my students right now in our nutritional immunology class, um, a number of them work for professional sports teams, and they really struggle with this because they now, coming from an integrated perspective, really looking at the foundations and the basics and realizing how much that is actually lacking in these people, despite the fact that they are such high performers. Um, and it's because the emphasis is often put on other things, like you're saying, like making it to that early AM training, whereas maybe they'd actually be better off getting a couple extra hours of sleep and having that recovery time and then coming out and really being able to kill it. Yeah. And I think one of the big things that I've been seeing lately in more of the chronobiology research and people discussing all of that is, is the big question mark surrounding the 6 a.m., the 7 a.m. training session, particularly in certain groups of folks, is that the best option? Well, according to chronobiology and, and hormone biology, no, it's not. It's actually not going to be a, a beneficial session because of all the things we just, just discussed in addition to you know, um, sleep-wake cycles that come naturally to the human system. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we need to take a step back and look at and ultimately say, what are we doing? How are we planning this? And I agree that if you're working with professional sports teams, that layers on so many other factors with travel Mm -hmm. and uh, time zones and sleep and nutrition, so many other things that have to be layered in there and considerations that ultimately, in my mind, I think we need to take care of first before we start talking about um, you know, speed, agility, power, strength, right? All those things in my mind come secondary, but that's a hard, that's a hard, that's a hard shift in philosophy to make, at least right now. Um, and particularly for, um, certain folks that are dealing with these specialized populations. Well, maybe, uh, talking a little bit more about the lab might actually help us tackle that. So you offer testing. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about your testing, maybe what you offer to public, and then how that might help with this figuring out where you are and what you really need. Yeah. So we established this testing program in 2010. And so ultimately what it was born out of was we have all this equipment and we were just using it for research and education. And uh, we thought, what better way to offer testing to the public, you know, obviously fee-based testing, but it's accessible. And we're also doing it at a university, so we do it at a high level. And so we currently offer a fairly expansive list of, of items, but our most popular is our body composition testing and also our resting metabolism. So essentially how many calories you're burning at rest and also looking at body composition, basically how does how does the body change or look when you're examining fat mass, fat-free mass? And in our case, some of the equipment we have is bone mass or bone density. And so those are the two things that we offer. We also offer um, submaximal and maximal aerobic testing, aerobic capacity testing. We also offer uh, different levels of strength-based testing um, and we also, in, in more of a niche market, we offer things like lactate threshold testing, which is more of aerobic capacity, think more athletic populations. Uh, we, also, we also do some uh, sprint and power testing from an anaerobic standpoint. So most of it is 
I would say, sports performance related. But for the general public, the three, the big three are the body composition, the resting metabolism, and then ultimately the maximal aerobic capacity and even to some extent strength testing. And why I mentioned those two specifically is because uh, there's some research out there currently, actually fairly new research that looks at those mechanisms, you know, your cardiovascular health, right? Your heart and your vascular system and also your strength-based system is as a mechanism to determine how healthy you are. Where's your system status, right? We talk a lot about blood pressure and cholesterol and, and some of those things as a measurement tool to analyze health. But ultimately, why not all also test the systems that facilitate function of, of you as a human, Right. And that's ultimately your, your, your aerobic capacity, your endurance capacity, your cardiovascular capacity, one. And then two, also looking at strength qualities. What is the, what is the health of your muscular system, your, your musculoskeletal system? And so we don't do those quite as often, but I really want to take the initiative and start pushing that more as long as it's safe to do so for a certain population, which we always make sure that's the case. But, uh, you know, I think that those those four really hit home in terms of where does a where does a person stand from a health perspective? And that's devoid of any type of blood markers or anything like that. Obviously, that just layers on another piece. If you can get that done, we don't do that specifically yet. But um, in conjunction with a healthcare provider, those those four things would be valuable tools. So what are some of the common misconceptions regarding exercise, metabolism, body composition, and general health testing? I think some of the common misconceptions, unfortunately, is that with the advent of for-profit companies coming into the marketplace and offering similar types of testing, depending on where you are in the United States or the world, right? This can be more pervasive or less pervasive. But I know since mm -hmm. we started our program in 2010, right, we were pretty much the only one in the DC metro area doing anything. And now in 2022, there are several other companies and also other universities, but mostly other privatized companies that are doing the same thing. And I think what most people don't realize is that the consistency of conditions upon which the testing is being done is absolutely critical. Let me give you an example. If I walk into a commercial gym and I see some type of body composition equipment that I can just do on my own, there's no, usually no instructions in terms of what I should be doing before I step on or partake in that test, right? And what we know is that if I don't standardize my conditions, and what do I mean by that? I mean, if I don't um, track or limit, depending on the piece of equipment, the amount of food or fluids that I take in before that test, if, am I adequately hydrated or mm -hmm. am I dehydrated? Um, did I get enough sleep the previous night? Did I, uh, if I'm a female, right, um, looking at um, menstrual cycle, where am I at in my menstrual cycle? And it, the only reason I say those things, among others, 
is because we have to ensure consistency. If I want to know that I, you know, this is my baseline testing today, and then three months from now, where do I stand? I want the results to be because of the training and nutrition that I'm doing, not because I chose a different time of day or any of those other aspects that I just talked about. Mm-hmm. Right? Apple, apples to apples instead that's of apples right. to oranges. That's right. So I think that that's the biggest, one of the biggest misconceptions. The other one is the wearable technology. And that we trust our wearable technology so much so that I think the general public, unfortunately, succumbs to the marketing ploys of some of these companies. And while the technology is fantastic, it's not always accurate. It's Mm -hmm. not always reliable. And there's, again, certain conditions that you have to understand the limitations of the technology, what it is and is not providing you. Um. And what can we do better? So, you know, I think ultimately those are the two that I see that are perhaps the biggest um, misconceptions. If we're looking at if we're looking at testing across the board. So, Kyle, follow up question on that. I think one of the things that I often, well, I used to see at the gym when I used to go to the gym <laughs> was <laughs> that people would use their um, their bioelectrical impedance after their workout. And I, I'm pretty sure you're going to have some thoughts on that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So biological impedance, different types of brands out there, but yes, they're, they're becoming pervasive in the gym environment for sure over the last couple of years. And the problem with that is post-workout seems like a good idea. Just hop on, uh, do whatever you need to do. It's quick, usually quick minute test or so. And I get my data before I go home. So it may be a feel good, you know, whatever improvements. But that's one of the things that we limit or that we try to that we try to hone in on and make sure as a pretest guideline it's controlled for, right? So we usually recommend for particularly biological impedance tests that somebody has not done activity within the previous 24 hours prior to that test. Um, certainly not right before. And the reason being for two reasons, one hydration status changes as a result of, of exercise, right? You're sweating, basically mm-hmm. um, losing body water through breathing and also as sweat, as I said, additionally, blood flow changes. So blood flow typically increases to the skin in an attempt to cool down the body during exercise. And that is going to change sort of the signal transduction through the body because the skin in the limbs specifically is what's in contact with the electrodes of the equipment. So again, the easiest way is to not exercise prior to that test because we don't know if today's exercise was more intense than the exercise you did two weeks ago when the last time you did that test. So again, coming back to sources of error, and variability, we try to keep it as tight as possible and recommend that people do the same. And again, that goes back to common misconceptions is, oh, this technology is great. doesn't matter when I step on it. You know, it'll be valid. And it's actually not. Lee, you know, we may need to ha- bring Kyle back for- and talk about wearables. Yes, I, I think that would be a great follow-up. Um, so also in follow-up, you already brought up the word valid. And when I hear the word valid, that reminds me of research. So tell us about what type of research you're currently doing. So right now, 
and we're just we're getting back into things, including public testing, because our facilities were closed for the vast majority of of COVID, unfortunately. But we're back ready to go. And and so what I'm personally working on uh, two larger endeavors currently. One has to do with um, more the tactical athlete side of things, and so we're working with um, Navy ROTC and their special warfare group. Um, so it's basically made up of, of cadets, student cadets that are aspiring for either the Marines or the Navy SEALs. And so what I've learned through students that I've had in, in class and, and those that are participating in programs like this is the resources are very limited for these types of groups. And what I mean by resources is anything from nutrition, health, and exercise education to actual physical resources of them being able to to do what they need to do from a preparation standpoint, from a physical preparation standpoint. And lastly, they don't get any guidance in terms of programming from a nutrition or an exercise standpoint. Their physical training programming is all on them as cadets. So that kind of started the, the ball rolling down this track. And so basically what we're doing right now is we're involved with a observational study initially to look at their current, their current, I guess, mode of operation, right? And so what we're doing is looking at not only their health, but tracking a whole bunch of physiological parameters, all to say, over the course of an academic semester, does your current health, nutrition, and training program that you implement yourself actually do what you intended to do? And what I think we're going to find is, no, it does not. And, and what they typically, these types of groups, not singling out anybody that's at GW, but generally ROTC or military tactical tend to overtrain because of that. And, and then injuries result. And then going back to the first question, <laughs> we're referring to treatment. And so ultimately what we're trying to do is create this in stages, observational first, what's going on. And then we're going to try to create an intervention from both a health aspect and also a, a training aspect and layer in some education to see if we can now guide them and say, hey, with the resources that you have, we can get you to a point where over the course of ultimately one semester, but then over four years, you're in a much better place as a senior, as a fourth year, fifth year student than you were as a first year. And then now you're better prepared to test into these elite tactical programs. So that's that's sort of the long-term view of that research. The other thing that we're doing, I'm doing it in conjunction with our department chair, Dr. Jen Sechek. We're launching a, a study, again, another observational study at this point with our GW's freshman class. And so we're trying to pull in folks who are first-year students, looking at all types of physiological parameters and basically tracking health and performance, human performance, over the course of their entire academic um, tenure at GW as an undergraduate student, right? So I don't think we know too much about that. We don't know how does being a collegiate or college student impact your health and your physiology over the course of four years. And then hopefully to see what we find out is, again, facilitate interventions that are proper to facilitate you know, improved health and, and availability of resources. 
So those are the two bigger things that are going on within our current facilities. We have a couple other um, we have a couple other research endeavors, collaborations going on with engineering, but we're always looking for more. So um, it's we're we're trying to get the wheels turning on this thing. You heard it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's an exciting time for research in general because I feel like we all took a little bit of a hiatus and, and getting things back up and running is, it's exciting, but it's also, it's a, it's a little bit harder than I anticipated to get things back up and running. I don't know if you're experiencing the same thing. We are. We are. It's been a little bit of a struggle, but the wheels are starting to turn now, which is good. Excellent. Well, we'll have to have you back so we can hear about the results of that. Uh, but today, that is all the time we have. So thank you so much for joining us, Kyle. Well, thank you so much for having me. Enjoyed it. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.